0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg from Humankind. Occasionally on this podcast, we present classic programs from our archive, including the one you'll hear now from our series, Kindred Spirits. For that program, we sought out people of many backgrounds, traditions, and life experiences to understand the personal beliefs that give them purpose and animate their activities. If you like what you hear on this podcast, we're asking for your help to keep it going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage click on how you can help. Thanks.
1: Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar.
0: Our Father, who art in heaven. In you, O Lord, I trust.
2: May I never be
0: confounded.
2: Walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in everyone. You're listening to Kindred
0: Spirits. San Francisco. I'm David Freudberg. Our guest today is Jacob Needleman, a wonderful author whose works have attempted to build bridges of understanding. He wrote A Sense of the Cosmos with an eye toward what is common to modern science and ancient wisdom. His book The New Religions speaks to Western readers about the influx of Eastern spiritual tradition. Today we'll consider his most recent writing entitled Lost Christianity, a journey of rediscovery to the center of Christian experience. One of the people you profiled, and very comically, I thought, was a rather earthy priest named Father Vincent, who took a very interesting position. He insisted there are no true Christians today, which may be a bit of an extreme statement. But what is he getting at there?
1: Well.
2: What he's communicating, and what the book is partly about, the true spiritual tradition is something of an earthquake in human life. It cuts the ground out from you completely. Um, It takes away what you consider to be your most precious beliefs, your opinions, your sense of yourself, your views of your own value. And in stripping all that away, something else can appear. That's extraordinary, that's higher, that's truly higher. But you can't compromise with that first thing, the stripping away. It can be very gradual. It can be done with a certain strategy that the, where the person can take his time so that he understands it very, very clearly, what's happening. But at one point in every tradition, every real great spiritual tradition, or at one time or another, a person has to cut something that he's trusted in himself in order to find something higher. Now, when a great spiritual teaching begins to spread throughout many, many numbers of people, something takes place, and everybody more or less recognizes this theoretically, if not actually in fact in detail how it happens, the edges begin to get chipped away, it begins to get rounded a little bit, it begins to get more comfortable, it begins to get easier and more acceptable. Even the idea that it's difficult becomes easy. One begins to say, oh yes, Christianity's difficult, I know that. Or, oh yes, uh, God, uh, the God of Judaism demands absolute trust, I know that. Now, what's for lunch? Um, so there's a very uh, a definite process of whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, in which what was meant to bring a human being into a completely different level in himself gradually gets turned into the old thing. And what was new and shattering becomes old and comfortable again. And many people uh, would say that that has gone very far, that process of kind of spreading out, being more comfortable, getting more understandable with, with the Christian tradition in the Western world, so far that it really has gotten to the point where there are no Christians in that sense. So, in that sense, every great, I think every great saint would agree with Father Vincent, and particularly speaking about himself. One of the most extraordinary things I think you'll find, probably you, are, you have in your own meetings with people who's, who are serious in this, is that the greater the person, the more awareness they seem to have of their own distance from where people should be. Not in any false humility sense, but in a real sense of understanding how far we are from what we should be. So that's Father Vincent. There are no there is only one Christian, as Nietzsche said, and he died on the cross.
0: Is it impossible?
2: No, it's not impossible, but it's nor is it, but on the other hand it isn't possible. What I call intermediate Christianity has to do with this point, that what we have in the great religious teachings that have come down to us and particularly in the Bible that we try to live by, are a set of moral guidelines of what is a moral, virtuous value life of value with respect to ourselves, our neighbor, and the whole society. These moral guidelines serve very, very much as ideals for the whole of a culture. However, and they're very important, they when you really come down to the nitty-gritty of them, they are telling us to do certain things, to be in a certain way, like love your neighbor is typical, is the great Christian message. Um, Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, all the things in the Ten Commandments. But nothing in the tradition that we now have it and tells us how to do that or helps us to be able to do that. If I tell you, don't lie, you can say, all right. But do you, are you able to not lie? Are you able to love? No. In fact, we are not given the help to be able to love. To love is a power. To be able to love is a power, an ability. Simply to tell someone to love and then not give him the power to do, help him to find out how to do it, is uh, breeds a kind of two two things it breeds, each one of which is deadly. One is a guilt I ought to love, but I can't. And uh, so there is a kind of debilitating guilt I don't love, I can't do it, I'm terrible, I'm rotten, I begin to hate myself, and this is, leads nowhere, leads to violence eventually or the other which is perhaps in a way even worse although it's hard to imagine anything worse than that kind of guilt that we have been instilled in us and that is to deceive yourself that you are able to do it when in fact you're not and I can be killing you at the same time imagining that I'm doing it out of love on the whole we um we don't really help our neighbor very well we may like to think we can and we may have good intentions but in fact um, we very often just don't we help our neighbor only when he, our neighbor is smiling at us but um, when our neighbor begins to not smile at us we start getting angry at him and we know from we start by wanting to help we end by hurting so often we have no control over our emotions. If we had control over, real control from the heart, not some puritanical suppression of the emotion, but if we had real control over our emotional, our egoism, our egoistic emotions, we could help our neighbor. But in fact, the moment my neighbor does something that makes me, that upsets me, I can no longer help him. I'm a a slave to my emotional reactions. So what I'm saying here, among other things, is that before I can really help my neighbor, I have to be a person who has some mastery of my emotions. And that you don't get just by sitting around wishing for it. It's something you have to work for, to have a, to be no longer in the control of egoistic emotions. Many of the things we do to help people are just disguised egoism. Not all of them, I don't mean to blank it, but many of the things you ask, you, you look at yourself sincerely sometimes, and you see... Uh, uh, many of the times uh, you're helping somebody, you're expecting um, to be thanked for it in some way. And if you're not thanked for it, you'll get upset and you may even wind up hurting the person because of that. So until you are master of yourself, until you can really help yourself, you cannot help another person. That's what I'm saying. I don't mean, I'm not talking about it on the, on the simple level, which every normal human being should do. And obviously, uh, if somebody's drowning, you throw them a rope. So that has been a tremendous loss in our culture, is that the Judeo-Christian ideals have been given in such a way that we imagine either we're able to do them or we feel guilty because we don't. So something's been lost from our tradition, which is the practical way to, to gain the power to be able to love or to do that.
0: Now, in the book, you've called that practical way attention of the heart which seems in a very neat fashion to bridge an Eastern and a Western concept. It bridges the Eastern notion of contemplation, meditation, awareness, attentiveness, attention, and the Western heartfelt soul yearning. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that in contemporary Christianity, it's possible. For those two strands to tie together, how does one uh, develop that attention of the heart?
2: Well, you first you have to see, understand it uh, as an idea first. So very clearly what we're talking about there. And so that therefore the first step is not to be impatient to have it. But first step is to understand what we're talking about. And that will take time. And it takes time, it takes discussion, it takes finding people who can help you to understand it. And then, as an idea even, and then having understood it, uh, we're skipping quite as long, a lot of steps here, having understood it intellectually, you begin to look at your life, your own life and in a different way. You begin to look at the experiences of your whole life and you can pick out more and more successfully those moments of life when this this existed in you spontaneously. And they're very different moments than you would have thought generally as your high moments, as your best moments. Very often they're tremendous uh, disappointments or moments when you have really been terribly in question or when you've been in danger, or when you've had tremendous satisfaction, so much that you couldn't bear it. Or things that, and you begin to s- take out moments of your life when you say, yeah, that was a moment when I had an, an, a central attention, when I existed, and I was in touch with all my parts. For example, many people experience that when they're in sudden danger, say an automobile accident suddenly appearing. And they're about to, They feel suddenly I am here, I'm in touch, I'm not afraid anymore, and even if I'm going to die in the next two seconds, I, I I exist.
0: And what do they do? They cry out, oh, God.
2: Well, very often, yes. Or uh, it passes by, or it turns into something else, or they get very enthusiastic about that, or make a whole thing out of it. But they, that one moment appeared. And very often, these moments are in childhood, when you're standing alone, and you look up at the sky, and you say, I'm here, the stars are there. And, uh, what am I? And who is it Who created it? And when it's a feeling which brings all your parts together. Now, those moments are approaching the moments of the attention. of In that moment, in that state, you could love. But it passes quickly, and we don't know how to hold on to it. Now, what I call an intermediate Christianity is the intentional discipline of bringing about those states more often so that I live more and more in that state, and I can reach it by my, through a kind of uh, struggle. Now, the actual details of that I, one can't go into in, in, any, in any way, even if I knew of them, I, one can't, in, a, in, a, in an interview like this, go into But I think that, help you place it, we're talking about a state of, of presence which has simply not been uh, honored in our culture, but we all have moments of them, but we don't call them our high points because the culture has honored something else like great passion or great intellectual brilliance or sexual pleasure or, or uh, achievements of some kind. That's been what's been honored, but these states have, been res- have not been respected, although we all have them. As soon as it's called attention to, we say, oh yes, of course, I know what you mean. Yes, I've, I've been there.
0: One of the nice points you've made is that in previous cultures, uh, this experience, this faculty of uh, feeling all of one's parts are somehow unified. That moment has been honored in the Christian tradition, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you've cited uh, some ancient uh, voices uh, as proof. Saint Simeon of the 10th century, a spiritual master. Maybe you could tell us a bit about him.
2: There are so many places in the writings of the early Christians and the medieval Christians, and even more later ones, where you find this state and this, this work of attention referred to, that it, would, it wouldn't be any point to talk about this particular person. But in the Byzantine tradition, Eastern Christian tradition, there's a collection of writings of the fathers, uh, dating back from the fifth, fourth, fifth century, going up to the twelfth, thirteenth century, this collection of writings is called the Philokalia. The um, and you find in there throughout uh, writings about gathering the attention, coming into a state of presence, the attention of the heart, uh, guarding the mind, as they call it sometimes. They use different words for this than we have. The mind is not necessarily the intellectual brain that we speak of all the time. Um, so you can see definite evidence that these people were working with that sort of thing. In the Desert Fathers, you see it too very much. It's there. It's, once you start looking for it, you see it all over the place. The theology of the Western Christian tradition and the Eastern Christian tradition uh, moved away from that eventually. And so this particular work that we're speaking of was forgotten completely. So I can't say more than these were spiritual teachers. There was obviously a line of work of these things. and St. Simeon was just one of dozens and dozens of great um, guides who were teaching this way.
0: Uh, Could we read a quote from him, though?
2: The passage I'll read to you is, he says, But you... He's speaking to his pupil. If you want to be saved, begin to work thus. Having established perfect obedience in your heart, act in everything else with a pure conscience as though in the presence of God. For it is impossible to have a clear conscience without obedience. You must keep your conscience clear in three respects, in relation to God, in relation to your spiritual father, And in relation to other men, as well as to things and objects of the world. And then he goes on to say, in relation to God, it's your duty to keep your conscience clear, permitting yourself no action which, to your knowledge, is distasteful and unpleasing to God. In relation to your spiritual father, which means your teacher, your guide, do only what he tells you, allowing yourself to do nothing, either more or less, and proceed guided solely by his will and intention. And finally, he says, in relation to other people, you must refrain from doing to them anything you yourself hate or dislike being done to you. Now, he says, in brief, finally, do everything as though in the presence of God. And so, in whatever you do, you need never allow your conscience to wound and denounce you for not having done your work well. Now, that sounds like a wonderful, it is, it's a wonderful statement of christian life of any normal human life but the point is there's another passage which makes the whole point of lost christianity clear which came to me i was reading this saint simeon dozens of times why does he say this if i could be like that there would be no problem if i could be in touch with my conscience fine but the whole point of christianity where it's gotten lost is that it tells us to do these things but i'm not able to do them so there is this little place where St. Simeon says, keep your mind there in the heart, trying by every possible means to find the place where the heart is, in order that, having found it, your mind should constantly abide there. Wrestling thus, the mind will find the place of the heart. And that's the point of money to make, is that we don't know the place of the heart. We have to find the place of the heart. If we don't find it, then all the rest of this is just theoretical, it's just idealism. And it's almost never, in all the literature of Christian traditions you come upon, it's almost never stated as clearly as it is here, that you can't just say, act out of conscience, act out of love. You have to be able to find this central source of feeling, of the attention of feeling, which is what he calls the place of the heart. And that makes Saint Simeon, um, to me, an example of a real lost, the, the real Christianity, the, the one that works, that recognizes us where we really are, which says, yes, I, I grant I should live according to conscience, but I can't do that. I have to be in touch with some element in myself that can help me do that. And he's put, calling attention to that. So, but but,
0: how do you do that? How, how do you actually find the heart in that sense? This,
2: uh, that is a big question, and it, it's a big, serious, difficult, immense question, and it's, yet it's a practical question. And as I said, go back to what I said to you before, if you were to be helped by someone or some teaching to look at your life or your present life and, uh, at those moments when you really have spontaneously been in touch with that and try to examine or observe what brought you there, then you will know how to do it. That's a very difficult, long, but possible thing to do. When you, say, have these moments of utter presence, when you are in touch with the real heart, which is not emotion, real feeling is not emotion, which is something that I spoke about in the early part of this book with Anthony Bloom. When you see that what brought you to that, then you will know how. The answer will you find for yourself but you can't give a prescription on that. It's not so simple. It's, uh, but it, it is possible by observing the situations, the occasions when you are brought into that. And sometimes it's the most completely illogical thing you could imagine.
0: Maybe be necessary to jolt you into discovery. You've said that this attention of the heart has sort of gotten covered over Mm-hmm. through the centuries of Christianity and part of this has led to a very strong distaste in Christian dogma uh, for mysticism. I wonder if you could trace for us a little bit of that history. How did that happen? Why did it happen? And do you see any roots of renewal now?
2: It's many, many factors involved and in what having to do with the fact that Christianity in a after a couple of centuries, began to become a world religion. That is a religion of many, many people, millions of people became, in the fourth century, you know, the Emperor Constantine uh, adopted Christianity and it became the religion of the Empire. And that's a very crucial moment in the history of Christianity when it became something very serious happens in a human being's life, when if, or a Christian's life, when it becomes externally more profitable to be a Christian than not to be—that is, when it's better for your money or your external goods to be called a Christian—originally Christianity is the religion of the dispossessed, the people, the alien, the people who, who are—it's not profitable to be a Christian. It, the the only way, reason to be a Christian is have to do with your relation to God, not because it'll make you more money or you have a better house or you won't be persecuted or something. So a little certain degree of persecution, in a sense, is probably very necessary to real Christianity. So in any case, I'm not saying that that there are many aspects to that, but when Christianity becomes a world religion, it has different things to do than when it's a mystical spirituality. And when mysticism itself or inner experience which was what the early fathers in the desert, for example, were pursuing, becomes something that almost everybody tries, all by themselves. You get a kind of proliferation of freelance mystics all over the place, and very often that turns into a kind of fantasy fantasy land whatever you have you have a high experience you get a jolt you get a jag you get a this you get a that you suffer you can do without you you can decide to do without food for 50 years or something and you get all these fantastic experiences and you call that christianity most of that very often is just projecting your own fantasies good intention though they may be and naturally a church which wants to have a, a body of ideas and teaching and ritual and moral ideals to help people live a normal life in a certain way has got to be suspicious or even resistant, very resistant to that sort of thing. No freelance mysticism is permitted in that sense. And so that, that is that's a, I think, a understandable and I could, you could argue even a healthy thing for, the, for a world religion to do. However, when it gets to the point that all inner experience in its impatience, in its concern to not encourage um, fantasies, subjective fantasies, the church someplace along the line seemed to rule out mysticism at all for most people. And that was a mistake, I think, because there are authentic great experiences, even by freelancers, as it were, and they have to be discriminated and understood and distinguished from the majority, which is maybe just fantasy. At some point, the church seems to have lost that wish to discriminate at all, or its ability. And when that happened, you have lost, when you really lose the mystical core of a tradition, you've, you've sounded the death knell of a religion. At that, From that point on, it can go into all kinds of social action or philosophical sophistication or political scenes, and it no longer becomes um, a, 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 a whole way of living with paths that lead ultimately to... For those who wish it, to this deep experience of God in oneself. Now, you—it's you can identify the time in history when this happened. It's hard to do it, but you—you you can say that by say the uh, 17th century, 16th, 17th century, it was the church was pretty hostile or suspicious toward this sort of thing. There were some as if I use the phrase, some kosher mystics around. But on the whole, it was very suspicious and because there was a lot of political stuff going around, some of the mystical things. So it, it has a long history, this whole hostility toward the mystical. But in the Eastern traditions of the Christian, it hasn't been lost. There's still a respect for that in there. And nowadays, Christians everywhere, many Christians, are, are becoming aware that this inner dimension has been lost and they're trying to bring it back, bring back the spirituality dimension of the Christian tradition.
0: Thank you very, very much. I've been talking with Jacob Needleman, author of Lost Christianity, A Journey of Rediscovery to the Center of Christian Experience.
1: Spirits is produced by David Freudberg and Public Media Foundation with production assistance from Lee Ellen Marvin. Theme music by Russ Barenberg and Alan Byrne. Studio recording at WGBH Boston. Cassette tapes of this program are available for $9.95 each prepaid. To order cassettes or if you have questions or comments, Write to Kindred Spirits, Post Office Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. That's Kindred Spirits, Post Office Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. Our special thanks to the Satellite Program Development Fund at NPR, the Permanent Charity Fund of Boston, the Campbell and Hall Charity Fund, and stations WGBH, WNYC, and WFCR whose generous support made kindred spirits possible. Thank you very much for listening, and may the spirit of unity bring you peace.
2: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You
0: Can Help. Thank you.